If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. This is another of our popular Listener's Choice interviews, which we're playing over the weekend. We've chosen the most popular interviews for you to select the Listener's Choice winner. If you're not sure how the Listener's Choice competition works, have a look at horsechats.com choice for the rules and the leaderboard. Today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. International Horse College's motto is people safety and horse welfare, and you'll find this message throughout our chats. Registered Training Organisation number 31352. Today's guest is Diana Waters. If you think the name's familiar, it is probably. Um, Diana's here for a third time. She's becoming a regular guest. She was here on 016 when we found out a bit more about Diana and she came back to talk about the biomechanical approach to riding and that was number 153. And today Diana's going to talk to us about 10 points and to talk to us about what a good group lesson would look like. She's got 10 tips for teaching a group lesson. How are you today, Diana? I'm great, thanks. How are you, Diana? Yeah, wonderful now. Yeah. Diana... Just tell us a little bit about the advantages of group lessons because, you know, I mean, people like private lessons, but there's got to be advantages for group lessons too because that happens quite a lot and maybe a couple of different scenarios where people would have group lessons. Yeah, okay. Um, there's, so there's lots of situations where as a riding instructor you might have to teach group lessons. Um, uh, you could be asked to teach at Pony Club. You could be asked to teach at a riding school or... Um, at a clinic or a training day, you might be invited along um, without necessarily knowing even what size of group you're going to have or what types of riders. But group lessons are a really good way to put rider skills into practice um, in, a, in a more sort of challenging and fun environment. You've got to navigate around other horses. You have to adjust your rhythm and tempo to match the speed of other people, all this while trying to, um, to work on yourself as a rider in a group lesson. So uh, the instructor's got a really important job, which is quite difficult as well. Um, but you can see what, whether it's a good group lesson because the instructor will seem calm and in charge um, and the horses will seem to all be moving around each other um, in a way that flows. Um, everybody seems to know what they're doing and it can actually be quite nice to watch. Okay. Yeah, so I think that would be a good summary of that. All right, well, if we can talk about now what a good group lesson would look like. You've sort of talked about the overview. And for group lessons, it's got to be a more economical approach. I mean, probably not for beginner beginners. They might need to be a bit one-on-one. But once you can already have that guide and control and, you know, moving around, it's more economical to teach in a group from the riding school's point of view. Yes. And the riders then generally get a better deal and they get more riding time if they're in a group lesson. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And when I've yeah. worked at riding schools, their parents are always keen to get their children into a group lesson, um, yes. partly for the financial reasons, but also the social side of it as well and the encouragement and the, the sense of rapport that you can nurture between the clients as well. It's good for the parents too because they can get a social side, you know, because they meet the parents of all the other yeah, kids. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, now what's the first point that we're going to talk about today? 
So number one is remembering students' names. Mm -hmm. This is really important because you might need, well, it's important for lots of reasons, but particularly for safety. Um, You may need to tell somebody quickly to do something. um, And if you don't know their names, that's going to make a big delay. So if you're teaching regularly at a riding school, it's easier because you just make a note of who's riding which pony. Um, If you forget the student's name, you could even use the pony's name, but it's better if you can remember the student's name. Um, If you're teaching a a one-off lesson, so if I'm teaching at Pony Club, I'll actually carry a notebook and I'll make a quick note of everybody's names with a a unique point, like small grey pony or red shirt or something like that, so that if I forget, I can quickly look down and check what everybody's name is. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now I'm just thinking about the names, you know, and it probably doesn't look as neat and tidy, but if you just have them, I've had it myself, you know, you just have a felt pen and you put them on the inside of your arm that you can sort of just glance down at the inside of your arm rather than pulling out your notebook. (laughs) Just something else to look at. Yeah, that's right. Anything that works is good, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do actually. Um, I quite like to have a notebook with me anyway. I always have my drink bottle, which I'm carrying anyway. But I quite yeah. like to have a notebook because I'll often make a quick note after the lesson as well, in case I'm going to be teaching those people again, so that I can remember any points that really stood out that that it would be important to know for next time. Just thinking about technology in the 21st century, it's also a good thing to just put those on your phone. But if you start making notes on your phone, people think that you're doing text messages in the middle of a lesson or something, don't they? Yeah, that's actually <laughs> a, a really important point. I didn't actually have this as one of my points, but I do agree with that. Um, I think you've got to be really careful, even if you're taking um, taking photos of people riding that they've asked you to do or making notes. Um, you've got to be careful that you're not giving that image that you're, um, you know, playing around on your phone when you're mm, supposed to be mm, teaching a lesson. Sure. And certainly should not be taking any phone calls or anything like that because those people are paid for your time and yes. they deserve your undivided attention. So, mm. um, yeah, it's good to make use of technology, but if you are doing that, it's important to tell people that <laughs> that's all right. you're doing. <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah. what's the next one? We've got safety and welfare. Can you tell us about that? Yes, safety and welfare. So as a coach or instructor, you've got responsibilities. Uh, Your main responsibilities are to to offer a great learning experience, but also to keep everybody safe and to make sure that the horses are uh, comfortable and happy and well-treated. So at the start of a lesson, I'll always check for the safety of gear and the fit. I quite often loosen throat lashes and nose bands because people... Especially with throat lashes, people seem to go around with their throat lashes very tight. Um, And I think that the horse's comfort is as important as safety. Um, As far as the horse's welfare goes, um, it's really important to remember that as a coach, you are the communicator between the horse and rider. This might be the only opportunity that this horse gets um, to have his rider told that he is lame or uncomfortable or that the saddle doesn't fit or that the rider is treating him too roughly. So um, I think it's really important that the instructor has the skill to deal with any of these scenarios tactfully, but in a way that makes an impact. If you just go in and say to somebody, oh, your horse is lame in front of everybody, they're not going to want to listen to you. They're not going to make any changes. Mm. But if you go up and, and talk to them quietly and say, look, it looks to me as if your horse is stepping a little bit short on his right hind. Did you 
where you're aware of this and have a quiet chat with them, they're more likely to listen and take it on board. But even though it can be tempting to just gloss over those things and get on with your lesson, you really do have a responsibility to the horse to find a way to communicate that to the rider. Um, if the horse, if the horse's saddle does not fit, for example, it's pressing on the spine, then you've got to you've got to refuse to teach that lesson until something's been fixed. Even if you find a riser or something that makes it more comfortable. Um, whereas if it's a minor issue, the saddle's slightly too narrow, but it's not causing major discomfort. You tell the rider about it, but you might be able to carry on with the lesson. But it is really important to um, to figure out whether the problem's serious enough that you need to you need to put a stop to it or whether you can sort of patch things up um, to continue with the lesson. Yeah. Uh, but it is really important because you're, you may, for example, at Pony Club, this may be the only chance that horse gets for a professional to have a look and, and to tell the rider that something is wrong. Yeah. Um, the other thing with the safety is your positioning. Um, in a group lesson, you've got people moving around you. You might have people going behind you. Um, not everybody is careful about steering their horse. Some people will allow their horse to go right into your personal space. Um, you need to be very aware of where you're positioning yourself. You need to be able to see everybody, but you also need to be able to get a close look at, at what you're supposed to be teaching. So, for example, if you're teaching a leg yield, I would usually, if I can, I'd step outside the arena onto the three-quarter line. That way nobody moves behind me, but I can see everybody and I can look up the three-quarter line and see whether the horse and the rider are straight. Yeah. So that's another aspect of safety as well. I, I think you could probably come back and give us 10 tips on safety with teaching a group lesson. Yeah, it is. It's, and it's things you sort of you learn through. It's not always necessarily covered in this much detail in a, in a riding instructor course. It's things that, that you um, figure out, and there's probably more of them that I've forgotten, but it's things that you learn through experience. I suppose the important thing is to have your eyes open and to be constantly thinking about, is this situation safe? Yes. I think I wanted to add one more as well about welfare, mm -hmm. um, which is to emphasise uh, the importance of attitude towards the horse and towards one another. So the instructor, again, has a big position of responsibility um, to treat the horse as well, to not allow um, sort of hitting and excessive spurring and pulling, uh, but also to always speak respectfully to the client and to get your point across without yelling or losing your temper um, and expect them to speak respectfully to you and towards each other as well. Okay. Okay, no, that's good. Well, we were going to say be thoughtful about language, so, yeah. Yeah, so that kind of flows in quite nicely to number three, doesn't it? Yeah, Which yeah. is be thoughtful about language. Yeah, yeah. So I'll give you some examples, actually. Um, you've got to be really careful. If you say he's being naughty, your horse is being naughty, or let him know who's boss, that type of language is actually encouraging the rider to, to blame the horse or to try and overpower him, mm -hmm. which leads to a little bit of a difference in the way they treat the horse. And it can lead to rough treatment and even violence. So I would, instead of saying he's being naughty, I would say you need to be clear about what you expect 
So we put the owners back on the rider. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, the horse might be being naughty, but that sort of language is not really helpful for this situation. You're trying to teach the rider what they can do about it. And what they can do is be clearer about what you expect. And um, instead of saying, let him know who's boss, you can say something like, um, you need to make the decision before he does. So again, that's putting the um, responsibility onto the rider to do the right thing rather than putting the blame onto the horse. And also use questioning um, because we want uh, students to learn to be problem solver and also to be empathetic to the horse. Um, Even from a young age, you can do that. Um, So you encourage them, I wonder why he did that. I wonder why he stopped. Get them to think about why and and to realise that that he is a living being as well. And that's the thoughtfulness coming back in, isn't it? You know, to be thoughtful about the language. So if you teach the students to be thoughtful, yeah, yeah. Yes, and again, here here it comes up again, how much of a, a responsibility we have as coaches how much of a difference we can make in the in the horse world just by changing those subtleties which which change the attitudes of, of the riders. Yes, yes. All right, so far we've gone through, number one, remember students' names, number two, safety and welfare, number three, being thoughtful about language. And the next one here is adapting methods according to class size because, like, if you think a, a, a one is private, two is a semi-private, three is really a group and you could have... 20 in a group or three in a group. So adapting methods according to class size. Just tell us a couple of different methods that you've used um, and this class size that you've used that on. Yes, okay. So um, I um, volunteer sometimes at my local working equitation club and um, if you go there, um, you're not necessarily sure how big a class size you're going to have or what people you're going to have in your class. If you're teaching at a riding school, hopefully the riding school will limit the class size to no bigger than about five or six. So that means that everybody gets a reasonable amount of attention, but there's enough people there to um, to make the class fun and social and to, and to give all those benefits that we talked about before. Um, but if you're a visiting instructor at Pony Club or at a clinic or, um, or at a training day, a riding club, um, you might have sort of up to 10 students or even more. Um, it's really important that you can keep everybody occupied and engaged and safe, of course, and also to try and give a meaningful experience to everybody. So in these um, bigger groups, they're going to learn more through practice rather than through detailed instruction. So you have to set up um, your tasks in a way that people can work together to practice and to improve and in a way that um, everyone can work as a team. Um, So you need to set up situations where everybody can keep moving without losing their turn as well. I've seen some large group lessons where there's 10 riders sitting waiting their turn in a group and people are getting anxious about whether they're going to miss their turn. Somebody's jumped in front of somebody else and that's all anybody's thinking about. Nobody's concentrating on on what they should be doing. So... um, So I'll give you an example. Um, It's a uh, working equitation scenario. So um, you might have a large mixed ability group of, let's say, 10 riders. Some of them don't know how to canter and others can do flying changes. So you've got a big range of abilities there as well. And they're practicing an obstacle called the bell corridor. 
They approach the corridor in canter or trot, depending on your level. You transition to walk and then you halt immobility and ring the bell. The lower levels you leave by walking forward and at the higher levels you rein back out of the corridor. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. It's good because yeah, it's an exercise good. you can set up it's good for different ability groups. Yeah. You could actually set that one up with poles, with two poles on the ground making a corridor and without a bell. So you don't have to do that in a, you know, having the specific obstacles. But in this example, we'll be in a big, on a big show ground or a big pony club ground. So we've got plenty of space, which you would need for a group of 10. So to begin with, every rider would ride the obstacle. You'd start with the most advanced riders and all the other riders are watching and they're asked to come up with one good point and one aspect that needs working on. So even though to begin with, everybody's standing still, they're learning from watching the more advanced riders first and everybody's thinking about uh, whether the exercise has been performed well or not. Um, so you do that once through. Um, things that need working on, there's all sorts of things. It could be the quality of the approach, like the rhythm, the frame, the straightness. It could be the transition, which trot, for, trot to walk for some or canter to walk for others. It could be the quality of the walk-halt transition. It could be the immobility. It could be the rain back. Um, so each rider has ridden and the watching riders have identified something that's good and something that needs to work on. When that's done, all of the riders go off and work by themselves away from the obstacle. Um, and the rider and the instructor is standing and doing a quick check to make sure, especially the lower levels, know what they're doing and have something they can work on independently. And then the riders ride the obstacle again in the same order while the rest of the ride continue working on their chosen thing. Um, the instructor watches the rider at the obstacle and gives feedback and pointers so they can go away and work again. And the instructor then calls the next rider when it's their turn. And quite a good way of doing this is you give each uh, rider a number as you're going through the first time, which they remember. And then you just call out the number when it's the next person's turn. So that lets everybody carry on riding right up until their turn. And um, everybody gets an equal number of turns. Um, and the instructor's also keeping an eye out for safety. And if anyone's having any difficulty while they're working independently, so that they can intervene if needed. Yep. Um, and then at the end, everybody comes together and we watch the, we watch everybody ride the obstacle again and we see whether we, they've improved or, or in which areas they've improved. So everybody also learned from each other's experience as well. So I just I'd get you through that kind of fairly detailed scenario because I think it's good to have a, an actual example of, of the things you can think about and the way you can set up an exercise, which is a fairly simple exercise, mm -hmm. but can be worked on in lots of different ways. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot-off-the-press notification. That is, that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available, and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, 
scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. Now, the next point you've got is having different goals for casual versus regular. And that's really down to what the riders want to get out of it. Or is there something else that you'd like to talk about? Like the casual rider who just comes in every now and then, whereas I suppose a regular is if they have a lesson with you every week. Yes, well, in a group lesson, it's a, again, it's a bit different from a private lesson because in a private lesson you have time at the start where we talk to the rider about what they want to get out of the session. Um, if we spend too long doing this in a group lesson, it takes up too much of the time and also you probably aren't going to be able to cater to exactly what everyone wants to do. In the case of goal setting, um, I think it's generally more down to the instructor to try and think about what goals they want to set. Um, and when I'm talking about casual versus regular, I'm really talking mostly about um, uh, whether you have a regular group that you teach every week in a riding school or a group that you are teaching, which may be the only time you teach them, for example, at a pony club rally. Your aim for both situations is, is to achieve a positive change in just a single session or to achieve as much as you can. So if you're teaching a casual lesson, you just have that one session, which means you need to look at what you've got or you need to look at what your priority is. So, for example, if you have a pony club group and they've all got faults of their position, um, they're also, some of them are riding unsafely, some of them are charging around and cantering close to somebody else's horse who is nervous and things like that. In that situation, I'd look at the priority, which would be getting everybody safe and bear in mind that they are going to carry on trotting cantering as far as you've left. So you need to look at what they're already doing and how you can make that safe. So you teach them a little bit about horse psychology, about why that might not be safe, and you teach them how they can canter safely away from somebody else, things like that. Um, but if I had the same group at a riding school that I was going to be taking on, and they've got the same problems, they've got the positional fault and the, the cantering round and unsafe riding, I, with that group at a riding school, I'd actually take them back a few steps because I know I can have them for quite a long time. So I can set, um, set up the basics and work from there. So I'd take them back to walk and I'd work on their positions first. I wouldn't let them trot canter until we've established those positions and then as we introduce the trot and the canter we introduce the the safety that goes with with that so really it's about um with a regular lesson you can take things more slowly and have more of a long-term plan for how to improve which will give better results in the long term but for a lesson you're teaching once you have to look and see what do these people most need now and how can I produce that within one session? Yeah, yeah. So you're really looking at the long term and short term, but the main thing is the positive change that you're going to get within the session. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So with a with a casual session it would be what change can I produce in an hour? Session. With yeah. a regular <laughs> session it's what what change can I produce over the next six months, which may not be so dramatic within this first session. Yeah. Okay. 
Joanna, the next one you've got, point number six, is getting the balance, you know, planning versus adaptability. You know, we always talk about our lesson plans, but um, talk about the adaptability again and when that would happen. Yes. So your plan needs to um, include your goals for the session um, and for the long terms, um, which will just vary sort of depending on, on who you're teaching. Um, but running within that, the personal, my personal goals are always the same. So you've got my personal goals, but also the goals of the riders. And my personal goals are to provo- provide an enjoyable experience for the horse and rider and to give them something they can take away which will improve things, the horse's way of going, the rider's skills or confidence, anything like that. Um, so when you're doing your plan, uh, I wouldn't necessarily have a specific plan for what I want to do, especially if it's going to be a lesson, because you have to go and look at what you've got. So for those types of lessons, I've got lots of ideas for things that I know work, which I've done before. Um, so I've got a few different options. I might have a rough idea of what I might do, but I won't decide on that until I've seen what riders I've got and what their needs are. Um, if it's more of a long-term thing, if I'm teaching regularly at a riding school, I make notes at the end of each lesson. Um, so, or after each lesson, I'll make notes on what we worked on, what we need to work on, and special notes. For example, uh, Sarah needs to ride a more forward-going horse next week. Things like that, so that yes. I can continue, um, especially when I've been teaching, sort of eight riders a day, sorry, eight lessons a day, five days a week, um, you need to remember what's done with each group so that you can continue with that and progress them on rather than go over the same thing. So your plan is to be informed by your evaluation of the previous lesson. But again, with with regular lessons where you've got more idea of exactly what you're going to work on, you still have to work within what you've got on the day. It might be windy and the horses are all really excited. Or it might be a really hot day and you decide to take him for a trail ride instead if the riding school allows that. So you've still got to have flexibility within every plan. But you also need to have a have an idea of where you want to go on that day and in the long term. Yes, yes. Now, you've sort of got the flexibility, but the next thing you've got is number seven, tailor the lesson to ability and fitness of both the horses and the riders. Yes. So especially difficult, again, when you've got a mixed ability class, but the activities need to be simple enough that they can be managed by the most novice rider. They've got to be challenging enough to keep the most advanced pupils engaged. So a really good way of doing this is to keep the exercises fairly simple, but you're looking for a different quality of work from the different abilities. So, for example, you might work on halt transitions walk to halt transitions and with a beginner rider you're happy if they manage to get the horse to halt and to just from a real aid and to to release that at the right time but from your more advanced riders you teach them the seat aid and you expect them to halt from an invisible aid you expect it to be smooth and you expect it to be at the marker um if it's a small class you can do different activities. For example, uh, you can take turns trotting to the rear of the ride, yep. um, and each rider has a different task within that trot. So a more advanced rider might trot one-handed, or they might make a trot, a trot halt transition within their turn, 
where the beginner will just trot around, holding on and practicing rising trot. Um, and going to the, the fitness and ability of the horse, if you've got a green horse or an unfit horse, a nervous horse or an old horse, you need to keep in mind when you're planning activities. Um, so you need to monitor the tiredness and the stress levels of the horses and you need to adapt. So there's that adaptability coming up again. Yep. Lots of meaningful things you can do in a walk if you have a hot day or tired horses or unfit horses or even if you've got a horse which is a bit lame in the trot and there's no way of that. You can go to walk work and you teach a lot of things you can start to teach, even novice runners, you can start teaching lateral work. You can teach people to feel the footfalls mm-hmm. and count out footfalls to make their rhythm really consistent. A lot of people struggle with that. They can feel the front two legs, but they can't feel the back two. Yes. You can also carry out additional work in halt. And also, even if you have a group of really fit horses and competent riders, it's really important to teach the riders how they should allow their horses to have breaks and long range stretches. I've worked at a few trail riding centers as well in my time, and sometimes people who have learned to ride in riding schools don't actually know how to ride on a long rein, and they're very frightened of doing that. So that it's quite important that you don't overlook them and you can use them to your advantage if you've got horses which need a little more of a break. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look. Horsechats.com. Just thinking about, you know, sometimes and I know that uh, I used to teach a lot of young riders who were very wanting to go and wanting to get a lot out of their lessons, very keen on jumping and galloping and everything else, and maybe the horses weren't so fit, but by the time you keep the young riders in two-point position, you know they sort of feel like they're getting a lot out of it, even though the horses may not have been doing as much work as the riders would have liked. Yeah, that's right. And there's a few other there's fun exercises you can do, like pairs riding. Yes. Um, they can ride either next to each other or they can ride opposite each other along the arena. Yep. Uh, the children think that's really fun, but you can do it at quite a slow pace. Yes. So it's really important to have lots of tricks up your sleeve and not just go faster and harder as yeah. you get more advanced. Yeah. Yes, and I think if you go back to being, you know, thinking about the horse's welfare, you don't want the horses to just go out and work hard all the time. You want the riders to appreciate what the horses are able to do and what they need to do. That's right. And um, particularly at Pony Club, um, children need to be taught um, to see the horse's sign fatigue as well and that it's not okay just to gallop round and around or yes. um, or to keep jumping if their horse is tired. Um, but children are actually, I, sometimes we kind of um, train them out of this. They're actually naturally quite nurturing and quite tuned into to, into that. Yeah. And I think if we continue actively teaching it, they will maintain that. Mm-hmm. Um, as an instructor, to say, right, I really want you to learn this and to forget <laughs> about teaching um, the effects of, of um, you know, reading the horse and consideration for the horse. But it really is worth taking the time to do that. Yeah, yeah. All right, for number eight, Diane, you've got clear communication, explain, prepare and execute. Yeah, okay. So um, in a group lesson, you sometimes might invent some really interesting little new activities or even just for a basic transition the same thing is the same if the rider knows exactly what they're doing 
and if they've got enough time to prepare, then they will ride the movement a lot nicer and it'll be more pleasant for the horse. So I've often had, especially with really key adult beginners, you'll tell them to halt and they'll suddenly yank the horse's mouth um, instead of, um, you, you almost have to say to them, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of warning and then I want you to do a smooth position. I want you to do, give your horse a bit of a warning. Mm-hmm. So each member of the group needs to know what they're doing and they need to know what's expected exactly before they begin an exercise. So, for example, if I'm riding a transition, I'd say uh, for a sort of established group who knows how I work, I'll say, right, the whole ride, prepare to halt, and the whole ride, halt. Yes. Um, the horses also know I'm saying as well <laughs> that I can be helpful or not. <laughs> or I can say, um, Anna, by yourself, prepare to trot. The rest of the ride's going to stay and walk. And I trot. So that's giving Anna time to prepare while everybody else is listening. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that um, if it's a complicated or a new exercise, I'll get all the riders to halt and I'll explain the exercise first in a way that everybody understands. Uh, and then I'll check that everybody understands, so I'll ask them to repeat it back to me. Um, and if it's a particularly challenging exercise, for example, you're changing the rain across the school alongside each other, I'm going to say we're going to change the rain straight across the school so that the rear file becomes the lead file. So when I tell you to turn right, you'll all turn at the same time, but you're riding in a line next to each other, which is like a race, but we're going to try and stay together, not race. So ride straight across the arena and then left at the other end so that Anna is now in the lead. Can anybody suggest any problems we might have? So I'm marking this because we are changing direction. We're riding close next to each other as we have usually behind each other. So I want them to notice and to think about the fact horses might try to race. They might try to kick or bite. And we'll have a quick discussion about how we can stop those things from happening. And then I'll does everybody understand? And then I'll get somebody else to repeat it back. And then go ahead and do the exercise. Yeah. Um, and all that preparation is really worth it because it means the exercise now runs smoothly and safely. Sure. It's much more enjoyable. Sure. And the final thing with the clear communication, so we've got the explain, prepare, execute. The thing is the instructor needs to be speaking clearly. So you need to speak slowly. You need to know how to project your voice and how to breathe correctly whilst you're talking. Um, and also, it's really important that your tone is authoritative and calm. And horses respond really well to that calm tone. Um, you also use your tone, especially with more of a novice group, to manage your horses. So the horses are listening to you all the time, um, and they're watching your body language as well. If you want everybody to go steadier, you can use your voice to help with that. If, if you've got a rider who the horse is going a bit fast and they're getting a bit nervous, you talk in a calm voice and the horse and the rider yep. respond well to that. Nice. And again, I think, although I have I have had instructors in the past who have yelled at me and it's actually spurred me on and made me better, but I generally would recommend it's not a good idea to yell at people. That just shows that the instructor is not not made themselves clear enough. Um, it's really the instructor's responsibility to communicate clearly so that they don't need to yell. Yes. So there would only be a very rare case, for example, if someone's just about to get off the back of a horse that kicks and you might need to yell. But other than that, you need to be um, speaking respectfully or not. You said earlier um, about the groups, about giving them 
you know, the, the more advanced rider might go through, but the other riders have a look and they're watching. So you're keeping them all occupied, but that's actually the number, point number nine, is keep everyone occupied, give equal attention to all riders and avoid lengthy explanations. Yeah, I suppose we have kind of, and we've kind of already it's funny, I've missed that and seen avoid lengthy explanations. Yeah. And yeah. I just thought I may have just given some lengthy explanations there. Sorry if I have. Oh, I think you um, might want to go back and, and read but, yeah, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah. But I think, I think, I think you know, um, right through, you are crossing over, but it's quite holistic in nature is the whole um, yeah. teaching the group lesson, what the good group lesson should look like. And you do have to pull a bit from this and a bit from that. But... You know, the 10 tips are holistic yeah, that's right. within that teaching lesson. Yeah, yeah. So did you want to talk a bit more about point number nine? Yeah, I'll just add a little bit to that. Um, if you're used to teaching private lessons, it's very easy to get drawn into trying to solve a problem because you look at a rider and you think, oh, we can just um, fix their leg position and this and this, and the horse will go so much better. But that's going to take you five minutes during which everybody else is getting bored. So you need to remember in the group lesson, everybody's paid an equal amount to have the lesson. Yes. They all deserve an equal amount of attention from you. If somebody needs sort of specific attention, then they need to book in a private lesson. It's a different sort of discussion altogether that you have as a group lesson. Yes. If somebody's struggling to control their horse, it's tricky because you need to give them some help now for safety reasons. But in that situation, uh, I will try and change the environment. So, for example, there's a horse that's spooky at one side of the school. I'll split the class into two 20-metre circles and I'll put the spooky horse at the non-spooky end of the school. If there's a horse running off the or canter, I'll bring the whole class back to the walk and we'll all work on our halt transitions. And then we introduce trot again, we'll do it in a different way. So we use walk, trot, walk transitions or something like that. So you need, this is another case, again, it's coming up again, ability. You need to adapt the situation and the lesson plan in a way that means you don't have to spend a lot of time trying to fix somebody's problem, which is, which is affecting the class. Yes, yes. And you don't want to have to keep stopping and starting is the other thing. Um, so I've covered that in, in the other uh, explanations, I think. Um, find activities where you can give one simple explanation at start and then everyone can work on it so that for the majority of the lesson, everybody's moving around. And I think that kind of takes us on to point 10 as well, doesn't it? Which is learning through practice and writing simple exercises as well. Yeah. Yeah. So in a private lesson, as you said before, you discuss, you explain and... You show as much as a rider needs. It's a very two-way thing. You ask them how that felt. You make small adjustments until they get the feel of it. You cater the whole class to their needs. Um, so if somebody's a nervous rider, they've got a tricky horse, they really want to progress their learning quickly and learn a new skill they've been struggling with, then a private lesson is really good for them. Yes. In a group lesson, you don't have time for this type of teaching. Um, it's more a case of doing and practicing. So you need to pick tasks you can already do, or you need to introduce something that they'll be able to manage easily. So um, you can give a simple exercise that has 
um, an interesting or a challenging twist. So, for example, you can do uh, walk top transitions at the four the twenty meter circle. I know twenty meter circles don't have four points, but you can divide it up. Well, you've got your tangent points, the four points, the four the tangent circles. Points. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you get everybody has to halt at the same time. So they have to. There's eight riders spread over two twenty meter circles, and they all have to halt at the same time as they reach those four points. So that means they have to teach other speed and where they are, and they have to circle that. Yes, and we'd have to be talking about a 20 by 60, wouldn't we? Because a 20 by 40, it's not going to work. Yes. yes. Well, you can do it. I've done it in a 20 by 40 as well. That's even you've harder. You've got to make your circle a little smaller. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so uh, it's actually very difficult for the rider, but it's using techniques they can already do, mm. which is riding an accurate circle and halting and monitoring their rhythm and tempo. Yep. So... You're not asking them to do something new. You're asking them to practice and improve on what they can already do. And if you've got four riders, you can do that same exercise um, over two within trot with a halt transition at C or A and X, for example. And the other situation is that you're um, introducing a new activity. So, for example, if you have students who are training for their instructor certificate, and they always ride in a group lesson, which happens quite a lot in the UK. Um, you'll have uh, working pupils who always ride in the group lessons, but they need to progress their skills. If you're teaching them a leg of the first time first, you need to make sure that they um, have all the prerequisites for that, and they will be able to do it. And then you set it up. Uh, you get somebody to do a demonstration where you walk with them and show them how to do it. And then you would... Uh, get everybody to do it uh, down one quarter line when you're watching, and then they can practice down the next quarter line when not watching. But they, they get plenty of chance to practice, and it's uh, sort of progressing on, but without having to be constantly there at the time. Yes, yes. Yeah. No, that's good. I think, uh, you know, just going back, I think, I think what you've talked about has been quite holistic, but I'm just going to go through again and talk about the 10 points. The first one was to remember the students' names, and you talked a couple of different techniques to remember the names. The second one was you talked about your safety and welfare and about how it's the instructor's responsibility because sometimes a student will come and they don't have the knowledge to even know that the horse is lame. So it really is up to the instructor to draw attention to the fact that the horse's welfare is at risk if you yeah. go forward with the lesson. The next one was thinking students but being thoughtful about the language that you use and getting the students to be thinking about the way they're, they're treating the horse. You talked about adapting methods. That's number four to the class size. We've got the bigger groups that practice different things. You talked about the bell corridor exercise. That was quite a good one, I think. You know, and it's a two poles where you can canter in, rein back out, or you can trot, do a transition to walk, halt, and then walk out. I think that was a good one too, Diane. Do you use that one much? Uh, yes. Um, I started sort of in the field of working equitation recently. That's what gave me the idea for it. Yeah. And it is really versatile because you don't need – there's actually quite a few obstacles for working equitation which are really good for that type of thing. But with the bell corridor, you don't need any equipment, really. Two poles on the ground will yeah. do the same job. So, yeah, that is a good one. All right, and then number five, you talked about the different goals for the casual and regular riders. You know, riding, you might be teaching riding schools once a week or just teaching the occasional pony clubs, but 
Either way, you're looking for positive change. And then the next one, number six, was getting the balance. You talked about planning and adaptability, and the main thing that you want to do is to provide an enjoyable experience for both horse and rider. Number seven, tailor the lesson to ability of fitness of both horses and riders. Number eight, clear communication, explain, prepare, execute. And number nine, keep everyone occupied, giving equal attention. And uh, number 10, learning through practice, writing simple exercise as well. I think there were quite a few good points. And I think people that are going to go on, Diana, and teach group lessons, that they're quite good points. You know, if they're getting, going to work in a writing school, even people who are working in a writing school who would like to expand their knowledge and, and just get a bit of your experience and put it into their experience. I think it's been a good talk today about the Yeah, well, I hope that people mm. are uh, sort of less intimidated by the idea of teaching lessons and, and uh, realise that there are ways to manage it. It's more challenging. It is a really good skill to have and it's a really good thing for people to do. So I hope that will give people some ideas of, of how to go about that if they're going to teacher group lessons for the first time yes yes for sure for sure all right so diana thanks again for your time today you know appreciate you you putting your time out um now if people would like to contact you they can look at the two previous exercises 016 or 05 or, or 153 where you talked about the biomechanical approach or diana do you want to just say again how people can contact you yeah, I've got a website which is called uh, responsiveequine.com.au and I've got my phone and my email address. Okay, and just in case you missed that as well, um, that'll be on horsechats.com slash Diana Waters 3 or if you go to horsechats.com, search for Diana or search for Waters. Thanks very much, Diana. Great talking to you and hopefully we'll catch up with you again sometime soon. Yeah, thanks, Grace. Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses, or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below. 